0: glad you're here today. We're starting a brand new series. If you weren't in here when we got started, my name is John. I'm the pastor here. New series called Poor Man's Gold. I was thinking about gold this week because on Thursday night, I was watching the 49ers play the Raiders. That's football, by the way, for those of you who don't know. And uh, it was a football game. I'm going to put that in air quotes because the Raiders are terrible. Dumpster fire happening in Oakland right now, but nevertheless, I was thinking about gold because the 49ers, if you realize this or not, they're named the 49ers because of the gold rush in 1849. It built up San Francisco and a lot of the West Coast, and so uh, that's where their name came from. So I'm thinking about the 49ers, I'm thinking about gold, thinking about the series, poor man's gold, and thinking, man, it's money, gold is a powerful motivator. So thinking about the gold rush, 1849. I don't know if you know this, but the first gold rush in America did not happen on the West Coast. The first gold rush in America happened just down the street, Gold Hill, North Carolina. All right, that was the first gold rush in American history, and so, uh, but the big one, of course, the one everybody knows about, was on the West Coast in around 1849. And people went out looking to seek their fortune. You know, they got, they got gold in their eyes. And so they wanted to go out and they wanted to stake their claim and they wanted to make their money. They wanted to set themselves up. And the funny thing is, most people didn't get rich by going out to, to California and finding gold. The people who got rich were the people who sold things to the people who were going out and trying to find gold. Stephen's not in his head because he knows maybe where this is going. Right? Here are some of the people that got rich off of the gold rush. They weren't prospectors. Certainly Sutter. What was, I don't remember. Does anybody know, is it George Sutter? Sutter's Mill, that's where the gold was found. Does anybody know? Any history buffs? Is that right, George Sutter? Y'all don't know. Yes, that's right. Okay, all right. Anyway, Sutter, he didn't get rich. You know who got rich? John Studebaker got rich. You ever heard of a Studebaker automobile? He started off making wheelbarrows for the miners and then eventually started making automobiles. These two fellows decided they needed to uh, start a bank that would help out the, uh, the miners. You ever heard of Henry Wells and William Fargo? Wells Fargo is the result of the gold rush. They're the ones who made the money. And then this, the, all the workers who were out there working in the mines, they were complaining because their pants kept wearing out. And so there was a demand for a higher quality pant. And so this guy, Levi Strauss, Decided he was going to make a more durable pair of pants for the miners to have. So the people who got rich weren't the ones who went out seeking their fortune. It was everybody else who made money off of them. But money is a powerful motivator. We think, if I can just hit it big, then finally things are going to be okay, which is why you all were playing the Powerball last week. Am I right? You guys, are trying, I, I, it was the topic of conversation during setup before church last week. Cause the Powerball was at like what? It was seven hundred fifty million or something. It, somebody won it, right? Somebody won it, so now it's down to like fifty three million. Anyway, but last week we had some people that were doing setup. I'm not going to call Tony out, but people who were who were in setup, and they said they said, "I'll tell you what." They said, "I'll tell you what. If I hit that Powerball, this church is buying land tomorrow." All right, we're going to have a building. We're going to have a place. And I'm like, I don't know if I should pray for someone to win the lottery or not. I feel like there's an, like there's an ethical thing going on, but I just went ahead and did it anyway and figured I could ask forgiveness later. I've had, I've had people ask me, if somebody wins a lottery and they give money to the church, will you take it? And I'm like, yes. Are you kidding me? I mean, we'll pray over it and everything, but yeah, of course we would. Money is, I've had those same thoughts, and some, it's funny how you, like, you have that. It may not be the lottery, but it might be an inheritance that you think is coming, or a ch- refund check that's coming from somewhere else, and it's the craziest thing, because you'll spend eight times in your head, you know, and you'll plan it out, and this is exactly what I'm going to do, and by the time you, you actually add it up, when you're all done, you're like, that's a lot more than actually I, isn't coming in, because a lot of times it's not actually coming in, but... Uh, Much as we think that money is the solution to our problems, what I have found is that more often than not, money is the problem more than it's a solution. A while back, we did a message where we talked about temptation. And there was a fence up here. If you were here, you might remember. There was a fence on stage. And I had everybody write down what their greatest temptation was and then bring it up and fold it up and throw it over the fence to symbolize a separation between you and that temptation. And then I told you I was going to take those and I was going to pray over them specifically every single card during the week. And I did that. And it, it amazed me that there was such a variety of responses to that. But there was one theme. Above everything else, there was only one theme that I could pull out of all of those temptations, and it was money. The struggle with spending too much, the struggle with getting into debt, the struggle with wanting things that you can't afford, and the position that that ends up putting you in. Last weekend, I had three uh, intense conversations with people, different issues that were going on in each situation, but there was one common theme in every single one of those, money. Money. And money isn't usually the problem. Money's usually a symptom of the problem. But nevertheless, it's so tangible and it's so in front of us all the time that it messes with us all the time. And so we're going to talk in this series about how to think about money. Money is a mental thing more than it's a physical thing. And the problem is we are trusting money more often than not. We are trusting money to do for us something it cannot do for us. We're trusting money to provide for us something it was never intended to provide. In fact, let me point something out. Money is our idea. Money is not God's idea. He did not come up with this concept. Human beings, we came up with this concept. And we get so attached to it. So we're going to talk about the mentality and money and what poor man's gold is really about. And then we're also gonna get really practical in this series, and we're gonna talk about some money management practices that are gonna help you get some things in order, because I know practically we struggle with how we're supposed to handle it, how we're supposed to manage it, and be faithful to God. So we're gonna do that all in this series. And I wanna to start today with what is kind of the classic passage on uh, money, and that's in 1 Timothy chapter six. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter six. I'll tell you, I've messed up money so bad over the years, uh, I've messed up money so bad in so many other ways. I don't trust my own reasoning (laughs) when it comes to finances. But I do trust God's reasoning when it comes to this stuff, which is why we're going to pull everything we discuss in the series directly out of Scripture. And uh, left to my own devices, I get myself in trouble. So we're going to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And just so you understand what's happening this whole book is a letter. It's written from Paul, one of the great church planters of all time, wrote half of the New Testament. He's writing this letter to a young protege, a guy he's training up. He's put him in charge of the church in Ephesus, and this guy's name is Timothy. He's a young guy. He's trying to help Timothy. Paul's trying to help Timothy understand what kind of ministry they should be doing, and what to watch out for, what to focus on, and what to stay away from. And so we learn a lot, not only, you know, as a pastor, I learn a lot from 1st and 2nd Timothy, because I feel like this this is directly for me because it was written from one pastor to another, but we learn a lot together about what our life and what the church should look like together. All right, so we're 1 Timothy chapter 6, and Paul has a warning here for Timothy. He says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, so if I can summarize, he's saying, if anybody's coming in here and they're teaching anything other than what Jesus taught you, if they're teaching anything other than what I've been telling you, be careful. Here's what it's going to do. He says, verse four, he's proud. This person who's teaching the, the wrong thing. He's proud, knowing nothing, but obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. So he's mincing words. He's trying to create controversy. And this is, what it, this is what's happening, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions. So he said, when, so these peop- this person or these people, when they come into your church, they're gonna teach something other than what Jesus taught. And it's because they're, they're mincing words and they're proud. And in your church, what it's gonna cause is envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. So envy, strife is arguing with each other, reviling, all, right, all of that stuff. And there's gonna be this air of, Um, distrust within your church because of what's happening and where's that coming from verse 5 useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose and here's the key who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself so why are these people coming into their church teaching the wrong thing, creating strife and, and frustration and, and accusation and mistrust? Why are they doing it? It's because they're greedy. They're doing it because they want, it's for themselves. They're proud. They're, they, they want, n- <laughs> and you might think, well, that sounds crazy. It's not crazy. Because it happens all the time. It happens in churches all over the place. If I can be real honest with you, I've been part of a church where this is exactly what happened. And we found ways of of justifying it. We found ways of explaining it. We find ways of trying to make it okay, and it's not okay. What happens is, at the heart of the leader, there is greed there's a desire to have more, to have more, to have more. Whatever's feeding that, whether it's insecurity or the need to prove something to people or, or just, just the desire for comfort or whatever it is, drives that. Those decisions are, things are taught which sound good but aren't actually what the scripture teaches. And as a result, you end up with people who come in and are part of your church and they can feel it. They can sense it. And because they sense it, they don't trust the leaders. Because they sense it, they, 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 they argue with each other. And now, all of a sudden, they start taking on the same greedy mentality that the leader has. And it all starts to grow together into this crazy, weird, messed up thing. And when, But when you walk in, you, you just, you're a part of it. And you go, something's not right about this, but I can't put my finger on it. Well, this is what's wrong with it. Because greed is at the heart of what's happening Instead of the true teaching of Jesus, and so you walk in and it just feels gross. it feels, feels like feels like a snake oil salesman or something. you just can't trust what's happening. Well the church, the early church, they had a problem with money, and not a whole lot has changed and so you got to be careful. We don't want that kind of culture here. We want to make sure that we have a culture that teaches, and our church teaches the truth of what Jesus said, the truth of what you, as a New Testament believer, what God expects you to do, who he wants you to be, not some twisted version of that to seek greedy gains. We need the right kind of gains. Let me give you an example of how this happens. I want you to see it in action, all right? And this one Might get me in trouble with some people. and I'm good with that. All right. The New Testament, New Testament Christians does not teach that a New Testament Christian is required to tithe. To give 10% of their income to the church. The New Testament does not teach that. But, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So, So let me explain. Let me explain how we take this and how we try to make it sound right, though. How, because I've done, and I'm telling you this, I'm not calling out anyone else. I'm calling myself out right now because I have done this. Let me tell you the arguments that I would make. All right. Well, one argument I wouldn't make, but someone else might make is that the Old Testament law to the Israelites required them to tithe. In fact, tithing is giving 10% of your income to the church. In fact, they were required to do more than that. It was worked out to roughly 23 to a third percent of their income was supposed to go to the church. Well, there's two problems with that. First of all, it's a misunderstanding of what's happening with the tithe because tithing in the Old Testament wasn't just a free will offering. They were required to do it under the law, which meant if you wanted to be justified before God, you had to do it. And it functioned as taxes for their society. So, so there's a secondary reason. But uh, the primary reason I would tell you that's not a good argument is because as New Testament Christians, we're no longer under the law. So we are not bound to do the things that the Old Testament law says they had to do to be justified before God. We're justified before God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because Christ gave his life on the cross, paid for our sins. We can turn to him in faith. And now there are no more requirements for us to be justified before God besides him. All right. So, so we're not under law. Well, and then some people would say, well, that's okay. That's okay. That's fine. We can, we can still make this work because the tithe is pre-law. Because Abraham, before the law was given, he brought a tenth of what he had to the priest Melchizedek. See, we have an example of tithing before the law was in place. And so it is required for us. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Because you look at that, it's really simple when you look at it. All right. Abraham did give a tenth of what he had to the priest Melchizedek as a free will offering. But it's an example of giving. It's not a commandment for us to give. So, I mean, if we're going to take the example of everything Abraham did in order for us, that, that it's a requirement for us to do, then I guess we all got to have a couple wives. Well, that's a good idea. Let's not do that. Okay. So, so that, that doesn't hold any water either. Well, then what we do is we jump to, we jump forward a little bit more and we go to the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. When the the prophet is talking to the people of Israel and he says, he says, you've robbed God. And they say, how do we rob God? He says, you've robbed him in tithes and offerings. So bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that my house may be full. Trust or test me in this, says the Lord God Almighty, and see if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you won't have room enough to contain it. And they say, see, God said, test me. God said, test me in tithing, and then you'll see that I'll pour out so much blessing, you won't have room for it. And so we even take it so far, I've done this too, as to do something like a God's guarantee card. where have you fill out a card and say, if I'm going to tithe over the next three months, and I'm going to tithe over the next three months, and if God doesn't bless me, then I can have all my money back. We guarantee it. We'll give you your money back. Which I've done it a hundred times before. I mean, I've stood on stage and said that. And we totally would have given you your money back. But nobody's gonna ask for their money back. That'd be super tacky. We know nobody is actually gonna do that. Right? But even so, here's the thing when you look at something like that in the Old Testament, There's a specific application and there's a universal application. The specific application is that God is looking at the people of Israel who have not been faithful to keep the law. And he said, you guys haven't been doing it and you need to see that if you follow the law, I'm going to bless you. So that is a promise. It's a statement to the nation of Israel, not to you and not to me. Okay. Now, there's a universal principle that when we are faithful to God to do what he asks us to do, that he blesses us, absolutely, but that is in no way a commandment to us to tithe. So, okay, well, let's go to the New Testament. What did Jesus say about tithing? Jesus mentioned it one time Matthew 23, 23. And he wasn't talking to the lame or to the sick or to the destitute or to the hurting. He wasn't talking to the Gentiles. He wasn't even talking to his disciples. He was talking to the Pharisees who were under the law. And he says, Yes, you tithe a tenth of your your mint and your cumin and what you have, but you neglect the way your manners of the law, such as love and grace and mercy. You should do the former without neglecting the latter. People say, Oh, look, see what Jesus said? He, He told them they should tithe. Well, of course he did. They're under the law. But the point of what he was saying wasn't, you guys have to tie. This point was, you're missing the point. (laughs) And that's what Jesus consistently did through his ministry. He said, you know the standard of the law, and what I'm calling you is to a higher standard. I'm calling you to a heart standard. You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you that if you even hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. He's saying, you know what the standard is in the Old Testament, and I'm telling you, you need to rise to a higher level. You need to rise to a heart level on this. And so though he never said it, if Jesus was going to mention tithing, and I believe he would say exactly the same thing. You've heard it said you should give a tenth of everything that you have, but I tell you, you need to be extremely generous in your heart. And I tell you that if you hold back from God anything that he asks you to give, then you've allowed greed to take over. But he, Jesus certainly isn't affirming tithing in Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three. And they say, well, what about something, what about something like First uh, Corinthians 16? Well, we, I've used this so many times in messages on tithing. Where Paul says, set aside a portion in keeping with your income. Where he says you should set aside a portion, a percentage, the principle of the percentage, every single week or every single month, and that you're supposed to give that. The problem is, Paul ain't talking about tithing. He's talking about a special offering they're doing for the church in Jerusalem. This is where context is so important. A special offering they're doing for the church in Jerusalem. He had gone to the church in Corinth and he'd asked them for commitments and they'd made financial commitments. They said, yes, we'll give X amount of dollars when you come back. And he's just giving them an instruction to put some aside every single week or every single month so that when he comes back, they're ready. It's a practical financial principle, so they're prepared to fulfill their commitment. But he is not talking about tithing. Here's, you cannot make a biblical argument to New Testament Christians that they are required to tithe or that it's a sin for them not to. So why do so many people teach it? Because they have to. Because in many cases, it's greed on the part of the teacher who wants more and more and more. Bigger and bigger buildings, a higher and higher salary. Sometimes it's fear because the church isn't paying its bills. And so the leader doesn't know what else to do. Because if if I can't get on stage and tell everybody they have to do this number, they'll never do this number. If I don't get on stage and say it has to be 10%, then they'll do 2%, and that's not enough. It's not enough for us to pay the bills. It's not enough for us to pay insurance. It's fear. It's greed. And so they feel like they have to. So what you do is you justify in your head, twisting and misrepresenting the scripture and misrepresenting what Jesus said to meet the ends that you have in mind. And Paul says to Timothy, from such, withdraw yourself. Don't get sucked into it. It will eat you alive and it will eat your church alive. Now, Jesus is not in any way saying or never says we should not get the idea that Christians aren't supposed to give. We are supposed to be extremely generous. We should be the most generous people on the planet. But it does not have to be dictated by a law, it's supposed to be led by the Spirit. That we as New Testament Christians are supposed to pray. We're supposed to talk to God. We're supposed to ask him, what is the threshold at which in my life, what is the threshold at which greed releases and generosity takes hold? Uh, My favorite example of this, you, you want a teaching on giving from Jesus. Here's a good one. Jesus has a young man come up to him, a rich man. Comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, well, what, what, what have you done? What, what, what do you have to show for yourself? What do you have to say for yourself? Have you kept the law? And the young man says, yes, I've kept the law to a T ever since I was a boy. Which, by the way, feel the need to point out, includes that he's been tithing. All right, as long as he's been earning an income. And Jesus looks back at him and he says, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come follow me and the man went away sad cuz he couldn't do it he wouldn't do it you see jesus looked back at him and said i know you're doing the minimum standard but what i'm telling you is that the threshold for him in his life that he would take him from greed he was an extreme case what would take him from greed to generosity wasn't 10% he was already doing that it was 100% and jesus knew that if he didn't give it all away then he was going to remain in the same greedy prideful state he'd been in his whole life every single one of us has a threshold And so we have to ask the Spirit what that is and be faithful to do it, not be held to a law. We need to teach accurately, and that's what Paul is telling to Timothy. And he says this, the next verse. Now, he doesn't want want Timothy to be worried about money. He doesn't want to be worried about the budget. He doesn't want him to be worried about financial campaigns and what's in the plate and all that kind of stuff. He says, now godliness with contentment is great gain godliness with contentment is great gain see we think we think that a windfall is great gain we think that reserves are a great gain but paul gives us a different equation he says godliness plus contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Money is not God's thing. Money is our thing. God did not give you a piggy bank in the womb. You didn't have one of those. You didn't have an IRA in utero. In utero okay, You didn't. We didn't come into the world with money. We don't go out with money. Famously been said, right? Never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. Can't take it with you. And so Paul gives us a new definition. He says, godliness plus contentment is great gain. What does that mean? It means that the way to be wealthy, a poor man's gold, is to know that you're doing what God wants you to do and to trust that God has already given you everything you need to do it. And I want you to hear this because I know we look ahead and we think about windfalls. We think about all this stuff. You lack absolutely nothing at this moment to be the person that God wants you to be. Nothing. There's nothing more you need in life to be who God wants you to be. And if you can accept that, if I can accept that in my heart, then that is great gain. That is a poor man's goal, faithfulness to know that I am doing what God wants me to do, being who God wants me to be, and that he's given me everything I need in order to do it. That is great gain. That is wealth. That is riches, to know that I am being faithful to God. It's not that I don't have enough. That is not the problem. I know we always think that's the problem. That's not the problem. If I don't think that I have enough, it's either because I misunderstand what God wants me to do, Or because I have been misusing what he's given me instead of using it the way I'm supposed to. That's why we're going to talk about the practical of managing money over the next couple of weeks because God has given you everything you need in order to be who he wants you to be and do what he wants you to do. That doesn't mean that we've been using it well enough to do it. We need to handle it well, be great stewards, as the Bible says. And watch out. Paul continues to warn him in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare, into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For This is going to sound really familiar. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Hear the words that he uses when he's talking about money? desire, right? To be clear, he doesn't say money is evil, and he doesn't say money is the root of all evil. He doesn't even say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The trust in money, the the passion for money, the desire for money. These are are the words he uses. I love the in the the English Standard Version, they translate the word craving. I crave it. I've got to have more of it. I can never get enough of it. I never do have enough of it. But money's not the problem. The equation is not godliness plus poverty equals great gain. The equation is godliness plus contentment is great gain. Whether I have a lot or have a little. Paul says this over and over again. I know what it is to have a lot. I know what it is to have a little. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's not about how much we have. It's about how content we are with the fact that it is going to help us fulfill God's mission in our life. We feel like we can never have enough, which is why I feel like money is a lot like Doritos. Right? I don't know what they put in them. There's crack in Doritos, I'm sure of it. There's something like it feel like you should have to be 18 in order to buy Doritos, maybe 21. I don't know. I just know that when, first of all, the first thing you need to understand about Doritos, I'm just going to sidetrack for a minute. First thing to understand about Doritos is that you can, you should never eat them straight out of the bag. Because if you eat them straight out of the bag, you will not stop until your hands are so caked with cool ranch dust that you can no longer even grip the the little scraps in the bottom of the bag, right? It happened to me last night. I got to be honest with you. I was already... All right, he's planning to say that. And I still fell in, into its snare. I was watching the football game last night, Texas Tech and Oklahoma, I think it was. And, and it was a good game. I was paying attention to what was happening. And I went and I got a, a bag of Doritos and I opened it up and I sat down on the couch with it. And I just, I went to town. <laughs> and at some point, some point in the middle of the third quarter, I just looked into the bag and I went, that's a problem. <laughs> I tried to figure out, even as I closed the bag up, I tried to leave some air in there so that when Jess looks into the pantry, the bag would look fuller than it actually is. Because we literally just bought them yesterday, and she's going to know. So, and she listens to the messages, so now she's going to know. So anyway, but I think money's a little bit like Doritos. It's like, I just got to have more. I just got to have more and more and more. And that's what we think. It doesn't matter how much we make. It doesn't matter how much money we got out of inheritance or, or a bonus at work or whatever it is, we always need more. We always want more. J.D. Rockefeller famously said, uh, He famously said, How much money does it take to make a man happy? Just one more dollar. He's one of the richest men in the history of our country. All right? And so when we have a passion for money, when we have a desire for money, when we think money's gonna give us fulfillment or satisfaction or contentment or, or significance or whatever we think the money's gonna give us, when we think it's fine, we're finally gonna get over the hump. We're finally gonna we're gonna we're gonna make it. Finally things are gonna be easy. That's what we think. Finally think everything's gonna work out. Finally I'm not gonna have to work so hard. Finally I'm not gonna have to worry anymore one day when i get there and it's always one more dollar and so what do i do i start this is what paul's talking about you got to be careful cuz it'll slide you into schemes tricks so it's the next it's the next multi-level marketing deal that i'm going to be a part of this thing's incredible i'm going to get money just for signing other people up how easy is that it's the next, I had, a, I had a, a couple one time come and sit down to me. They said, hey, this is an amazing thing. The government does, no, they're, they're keeping it under wraps, but it's a government deal. And the government will pay off all of your bills. And they were, they, they were, I, was sitting, I was in a pastor capacity. They're like, wouldn't it be great if, if all of the church's bills got paid off? didn't have any of these mortgages, didn't have any of these outstanding debt. I was like, I, was like, I mean, yeah, that's pretty incredible. But what do you need to do? They said, well, there's this guy, you just got to give $10,000 to this guy. And then he processes all the paperwork and he does everything. And then about six months down the road, all oh, your debt gets wiped out. I was like, wow. He said, we are not going to do that. <laughs> and by the way, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> and I couldn't believe, you know, they, they were in the middle of it. But, it. but what happens is it was so clearly a scheme. You know, it was so clearly uh, some, trying to someone trying to rip other people off, but the problem is when someone lays that opportunity in front of your eyes, and you think, "What could I do if my debt was all erased?" You don't think rationally. It's like it takes over your heart, and you start doing foolish things. Things that you look back later and go, "Why did I do that? Why did I buy that? Why did I make that commitment?" Why did I fall for that marketing trick? Because we got gold in our eyes. Because we got passionate about it. And Paul is telling Timothy, you got to stay away. You're so worried. People get so worried about living the dream. It ain't coming. We got to live the reality. And so he says, watch out love of money has caused all kinds of problems. Don't let that be you. He's telling Timothy, don't let that be you. And I feel like God has to tell me that all the time. Don't let that be you. And I want to tell you the same thing. Don't let that be you. Do not let greed control your heart. Don't let it happen. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. Jesus said this, Sermon on the Mount. He said, no one can serve two masters. For either hate one and love the other or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon or God and riches. Therefore, immediately after this, he says, he said, you can't serve God and money. Therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more Than food and the body. More than clothing. There is something more important we're supposed to be focused on than on wealth, than on riches, than on money. There's something more important we're supposed to be focused on. Life is more than what we see. Life is more than what we want right now. Life is more than comfort and ease. Life is more, it is more. It is better and bigger and more valuable. And there's somewhere else our eyes are supposed to be instead of on our bank account. Our eyes are not supposed to be focused here. Our eyes are supposed to be focused there. Our eyes are supposed to be focused on the kingdom that God is bringing to earth through his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is returning and will establish his kingdom here. And those of us that have been faithful now will have responsibility then. And our eyes should be on what's coming, not on what's here. Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins, but he didn't die on the cross to pay for our sins so that we could have a comfortable life right now. He didn't die on the cross so that we could live life on easy street. He didn't die on the cross so that everything would work out for us. He didn't die on the cross so we could be rich. He didn't die on the cross so we could have stuff. He didn't die on the cross so we could have a whole lot of fun. He died on the cross to pay for our sin so we can be a part of his kingdom that is coming. And he wants us to prepare now for what's coming then. And then great reward, great gain will be found in contentment and generosity, not in grief. Greed and selfishness, which the world celebrates. Here, we need to be focused on the kingdom that's coming, which is why Paul says this next. Verse 11. But you, so people have pierced themselves with many grief because they've been passionate about money because they've loved money. He said, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience. Gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Why does he spend all this time talking about the greatness of Christ? Because he's trying to tell Timothy, you need to have your eyes there, not here. Christ is coming back, so prepare now for what's coming. You need to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. He says you need to lay hold on eternal life. Is he saying that... that Timothy needs to earn his salvation or anything. No, he's not saying that. When he says lay hold on eternal life, he's saying start living now like you will then. You've got eternal life in the kingdom of God, so begin now. Don't wait until then. Live the way God has designed you to live and be content with what you have. And here's the thing. We are going to get practical next week. I'm going talk about like budgeting um, next week and debt and all that kind of stuff. Um, sp- I'll call it a spending plan, not a budget, if that makes you feel better. And uh, we are going to get to that next week. But it does us no good to talk about that unless we talk about this. Because you you can learn all the financial practices in the world. You can budget down to the penny. You can have goals. You can have retirement accounts. You can have saving. You can give. You can do all of these things. But if you're doing it for reward now, you will waste all of it. We must have our mentality right before we get our practices right. Because they will drive how we do it, right? So we're going to look. We're figuring out the why before we get to the how. So what are we supposed to do, right? So Paul goes through all of this with Timothy. Now, what's what's the application? I'm going to do this. I'm going to put on this mentality. I'm going to think about what it means to be a child of God, a citizen of heaven, citizen of God's kingdom, and I'm going to live that way. Now, what does that look like? That's what Paul says next. Verse eighteen, he said, "Tell them not to be haughty or to put their trust in riches." But to put their trust in God, he says in verse 18, let them do good. What are we supposed to do with our life? What are we supposed to do with our wealth? We're supposed to do good. Do good. That they be rich in good works. Ready to give. That ready word always gets me. Because for a long time, I, my heart was that I wanted to give, but I wasn't even ready to give because I didn't have finance, financial things in order. I didn't have a plan. And so I wasn't prepared even when I knew I was supposed to give. I didn't have the money or the ability to do it. And it wasn't because God hadn't given it to me. It's because I'd mismanaged what he'd given to me and I wasn't ready. Ready to give and willing to share. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. That you may live now how you will then. And I just want, I want to ask, I have to ask myself these things and I want to ask you these things directly. Are you doing good? And I don't mean that in the bad grammar sense. I mean, are you doing good with your life? Are you doing good with what God has given to you? Are you ready to give? This is what Paul told Timothy to command to the people in the church. Are you ready to give? And are you willing to share? Those are real questions we have to ask ourselves. And the, I know that the hard thing, the sad thing about this is that more often than not, the honest answer on one of these counts is no, no which means we have work to do, which means that if we're going to be the people that God wants us to be, to live now the way he intends for us to live then, then we got some things we got to get straightened out. We have some heart issues we need to work on. We have some communication that needs to happen with our spouse if you're married. There are things that we need to do in order to put ourselves in a position where we can confidently say, I'm rich in good works, I'm ready to give, and I'm willing to share. God has a mission for you, he has a mission for us, and he's given us everything that we need in order to do it. But that only happens when we're faithful to do what he leads us to do. So we have to answer those questions. I just want you to, for a second to imagine the confidence you would have. And I know just based on the conversations that I've had and by the statistics and all of that, that most people are not in the place where they feel confident in their finances and what they're doing with it. And I just want you to imagine the confidence you would have if you said, I'm going to put on this mentality and I'm going to put the practices in place to make sure that I'm being faithful to do what I want to do, what I plan to do, what God wants me to do. Imagine the confidence that you could have if you follow through and do that. Godliness with contentment leading to great gain. And I just want to tell you, you know, as as somebody, you know, I'm married, I have kids. My wife and I, um, we've been married for about 15 and a half years. And for the first three years of our marriage, we had no idea how to manage money, no clue. Nobody ever really taught us. We didn't have a class in school. Never really had that conversation with our parents. I had. I had one time. I sat down with my dad, and he pulled out a yellow pad. And I just said, "Dad, I just need. To, we're moving to North Carolina. We're getting married. We're moving to North Carolina. Here's what I'm gonna make. It's gonna be two months until Jess gets a paycheck. I just need to know if we can survive." You know? And dad said, "Well, let's figure it out." Brought out the yellow pad, wrote down what all our expenses were, wrote down the income. I think we had like 50 bucks left at the end of the month. He was like, "You're good." I'm like. Thank goodness. <laughs> it's a big relief. You know, we were going to do it anyway. But uh, yeah, that's what credit cards are for. That's what I thought at the time. And, uh, and so we moved to North Carolina. We didn't make a whole lot of money. We didn't know anybody. And uh, it was a struggle for three years. We had jested all the, the financial management, even though it's not really her strong suit. And I didn't really care, just as long as we had a little bit of a balance in the checking account at the end of the month. Um, but the reality is we weren't accomplishing anything. Uh, we were spending every extra dollar we had on ourselves, and we weren't being gen- gen- generous to anyone anywhere. So every every dollar that we brought in was being spent on us. And all I know is that we experienced extreme frustration during those three years. And that wasn't the only thing. There were a lot of things. And after about three years, we got involved with a church that started teaching us some things. We took a course called Financial Peace University, which we're going to offer uh, in January, by the way, if anybody's interested. And um, we uh, took that course and we learned how to manage it. We learned how to have the right mentality. And we learned the importance of generosity. And what I can tell you from my experience is that the last 12 years have been completely different than the first three. Across the board. And this is a piece of the greater story of what God has been doing in our life. But today I can tell you that I have 100% confidence in the way that we use money. I have no shame about it at all. I have no fear about it at all. Uh, we make wise purchases. We think about the, the mission that God has for us. We're as generous as we can possibly be. We are with, with everything in our life, not just money, with everything in our life. God has blessed us in so many ways as a couple. He's given us unity as a couple. He's given us communication and trust as a couple because we have the same goals and because we have a plan to accomplish those goals. And it's, it's because we learn to put on the right mentality to realize that money is a tool that God has given to us to serve his purposes. It is not something he's given us to use for whatever we want. So he has a plan for it. So if we start and we begin by putting on this mentality, then everything after it can change. And I want you to know that. We're in a completely different place today than we were then. And not about our bank account or anything we have. About our relationship. About our confidence. About our heart and our faithfulness to God. Because godliness plus contentment is great gain. That is a poor man's gold. Let's pray together. God, I just want to thank you for your love and so much. You loved us so much that you you were incredibly generous with us. You gave us your son. Your son died on the cross to pay for our sin. And you just wait for us to respond, to, to believe and put our faith in Christ. If there's anybody who's never done that before, wants that first step into the life that you've created for them, the life they were designed for, they know, they've seen, they've experienced the frustration that comes from living outside of your design. And they say, today, everything's going to change. Today, I'm going to give my life to Christ. Today, I'm going to give my life to you, God. Today, I'm going to believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that he rose again to pay for my sin so I can be a child of God. You can make that decision today. And God, I pray that you move in their heart to do it, to put their faith in you. And that in that moment you begin transforming them into the person you created them to be. The person they're going to be for all of eternity. And fill them with joy and hope and confidence and love and faithfulness and righteousness. And all of these things that you want to place into them. All the things you want to transform them into. To show them the version of themselves you've always designed for them to be. That you save them from their sin through Christ. And that they would put their focus and turn their attention to the kingdom that's coming. For all of us who've made the decision to follow you, God, I pray for the same thing. That you would keep our eyes off of the world. That you keep our eyes off of of the things that we think are going to give us contentment. The things that we think are going to give us significance. The things that we think are going to give us fulfillment. The things that we think are going to make our life easier, more enjoyable, or more purposeful. In particular, God, we look for some reason. There's something about money that makes us feel that. That if we just hit a certain level or have a certain thing That finally things will be complete. Finally that emptiness that we feel is going to be filled and it's not true. It's a trick. It's a trap. And by chasing it and pursuing it, we pierce ourselves through. Set us free from that. Help us to live by the equation that Paul gives. Godliness, honoring you, plus contentment, trusting you, is real. Wealth is great. Gain. And so God, whatever it is in our heart that's holding us back, whatever it is that won't let us let go, break that chain in our heart so that we can fully be who you want us to be. So we can experience the kind of riches that you have planned for us. Not gold like we think about gold, but real riches, faithfulness, confidence, peace, joy, fulfillment found in you, not anywhere else. God, I just pray for each person who's here who has decisions to make today that you would empower them through your spirit to follow through and to do what they know you're calling them to do so they can be everything you've designed them to be. We thank you.